Welcome to the second hour of The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Any minute, President Trump will hold his second of three rallies today in the final four days until Election Day here in the United States. The spread of coronavirus is also simultaneously reaching the worst levels ever in the U.S. Moments ago, the U.S. just crossed 9 million confirmed cases of coronavirus. 9 million. It took 14 days to reach this milestone, the shortest amount of time the U.S. has ever saddled a million cases. Plus, there are more than 229,000 deaths in the U.S. 229,000. Both of these are the highest rates in the world of coronavirus infection and coronavirus deaths, according to official numbers. And yet, President Trump and his allies want to pretend that this pandemic is going away, that it is not a huge crisis throughout the country. Just last night, President Trump's son, Donald Jr., shared a cruel and, and frankly, disgusting claim, a false claim, that almost no one in the U.S. is dying from coronavirus. I went through the CDC data because I kept hearing about new infections, but I was like, well, why aren't they talking about this? Oh, oh, because the number is almost nothing. The number is almost nothing. Almost nothing. Well, you can tell that to the families who lost 971 loved ones just yesterday, the same day that Donald Trump Jr. said that. 971. Or you can talk to the families of the more than 229,000 Americans who have died so far this pandemic. Those lives are not almost nothing, yet this is all part of the Trump closing argument that we've heard all week. Chief of Staff Mark Meadows kicked it off by telling me on Sunday that the Trump administration could not control the spread of the virus. We're not going to control the pandemic. We are going to control the fact that we get uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigation Why aren't we going to get control of the because, pandemic? Because it is a contagious virus, just like the flu. Yeah, but why now, President Trump on his campaign blitz is ignoring social distancing guidelines, gathering large crowds, no masks required, even though new cases of coronavirus are surging and some of them are traceable to his rallies. He is planning to hold multiple rallies every day until Election Day, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. President Trump and Joe Biden are making their closing arguments to voters while coronavirus cases are the highest they've ever been in the U.S. We're still rounding the corner. Donald Trump has given up. Infections are surging across the country, including in the battleground states where the candidates are spending the last days of the 2020 race. Hello, Michigan. Hello, Iowa. The U.S. reported almost 90,000 new daily cases yesterday, but the president pushed a different view of reality as he left Washington today. We're doing very well with respect to uh, making the turn on the uh, pandemic. We're working very hard on that. Great therapeutics. Trump once promised there would be a coronavirus vaccine before Election Day, but aides are now distancing themselves from that deadline. I mean, his goal has never, Election Day is kind of an arbitrary deadline. Americans are still suffering from this virus. The sooner we can get it, the better, and that's his goal. It was the president who set that arbitrary deadline that medical experts said wasn't realistic. So we're going to have a vaccine very soon, maybe even before a very special date. You know what date I'm talking about. The president's campaign announced today that he'll hold 14 rallies across seven states in the next three days. Oh, what a crowd. This is some crowd. Wow. This is a big crowd. Trump has continued to hold large events with little social distancing where the crowds are mostly maskless. His last stop is in Minnesota today, though the exact location of his rally was in flux after state officials insisted the event follow safety guidelines that include a cap on 250 attendees. 
25,000 people want to be there, and they say you can only have 250 people. So they thought I'd cancel, but I'm not canceling. Biden is also in the Midwest today with a different approach to the pandemic that his aides hope will help voters see him as a safe alternative to Trump. Donald Trump has waved the white flag. He surrendered to this virus. But the American people don't give up. In Michigan, the president ridiculed Biden for adhering to social distancing guidelines while he flouts them. I'm watching these Biden rallies. It's like there's nobody. Of course, he says that they want to do it that way on purpose. Trump even mocked a Fox News host for wearing a mask at his rally. I can't recognize you. Is that a mask? No way. Are you wearing a mask? I've never seen her in a mask. Look at you. Oh, she's being very politically correct. Whoa. Whoa. Jake, that comes from the same president who has said he has no problem with people wearing a mask. And while he was in Michigan, he also wrongly claimed that hospitals are overstating the numbers of coronavirus deaths in order to get more money. Of course, something that doctors have denied and said is not true. But his next stop is going to be in Wisconsin, a state that he won by less than a percentage point in 2016. And it shows you how important it is to the president. He's there today. The first lady is going to be there tomorrow. And of course, we know Joe Biden is also going to be there tonight. Jake. So the president said something about how people at his rallies, Caitlin, are wearing masks and he doesn't think it's a bad thing. Uh, but when you look at his rallies, most of the people there are not wearing masks. They're not distancing. So is he just trying to rewrite history and rewrite the reality we see in front of our eyes? I mean, these are unsafe events, according to health officials, period. Yeah, and we've seen campaign officials try to say people are wearing a mask. Often they'll have the people right behind the president in the frame of the camera wear one. I've been to a lot of these rallies, Jake. There are not a lot of people wearing a mask. And when you talk to them, you say, if the president said put on a mask while he's on stage, would you put one on? A lot of people often say yes, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thank you so much. Appreciate it. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, I want to I give you a chance to respond to Donald Trump. Uh, junior uh, who said that it, the death rate in this country uh, was almost nothing. He was actually reacting to a clip of you and me talking, saying, uh, and you were saying that it's not safe for people to go to Trump rallies and you wouldn't recommend they go. Um, but but how, what do you make of this saying uh, almost no one's dying of this virus? Yeah, I mean, he, I saw that clip, uh, Jake. It, it was obviously very mocking, uh, you know, toward these, these very scientific evidence-based recommendations. I mean, I, I, I think it's exactly what you said. You know, I mean, so many people have, have died and, and, you know, more than the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and Vietnam put together. And I, I know some of these families, I know they watch this show and because I email with them and talk to them. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's really, uh, just really vile, you know, um, I think, and, and really obviously disrespectful. You know, we, for the last eight months, Jake, have brought on epidemiologists and scientists and infectious disease doctors. We talk about them on this show. We do town halls. We have podcasts. The whole goal has been to try and educate people. Um, this, this mocking and demonizing and maligning of science, I think, is, is it, it's shocking to me that it, that it continues. I, again, I watched what, what uh, Don Jr. said, and he said, there's really no deaths. Uh, they're going away. It reminded me of what we heard from the president at the beginning. There's no cases. They're going away. How, how are we still having that conversation, you know, nine months into this at this point? So, it, you know, it, it hurt my feelings a little bit, Jake. What, what am I supposed to say, right? I mean, I, I was upset by it, not for me, but for all the people out there who have been 
so directly affected by this to be so dismissive of their lives. They, they, they died. They didn't need to. We showed what would have happened if we applied some of the policies around the world to the United States. If we had done what South Korea did, 2,799 people would have died, not 227,000 people. You know, it's just, the, the, the lists go on and on. We've tried to show people what's happening and tried to offer a plan. And we do that by, by reporting on it, talking to these scientists. And for some reason, that just didn't seem to, doesn't seem to click with him. No, and we've talked about the things that the administration has done that are good. Operation Warp Speed for a vaccine, yeah. uh, improvements in, in therapeutics and, and uh, increasing uh, or, or uh, speeding up the process by which um, they're okay to give the president his due. But the idea, I mean, just yesterday, the same day Don Jr. said this, 971 Americans died from the virus. Just yesterday, it is just... It is so heartbreaking uh, to see this denial of, of reality. Um, I, you know, I, I don't even know what to say. No, you know? I, 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 I'm with you, Jake. And I, we, we, you know, you and I have talked, I think, every day, just about since the beginning of this, every weekday. And, and I mean, there are things that are worth, you know, celebrating in terms of the progress of science and the vaccine uh, and, and the therapeutics. And overall, the death rate in terms of proportion of deaths, it will continue to go down, thankfully, hopefully. I mean, we are learning a lot, of, a lot about this virus. But the idea that, you know, the, the you still want to bury your head in the sand as opposed to taking this on and doing something about it, is, it's, it's incredibly frustrating. It's been sort of the most shaking thing, I think, for, for me, because I guess, you know, just as a doc, you sort of believe, you know, people will galvanize around this, will do the right thing. I mean, what could be more inspiring than this idea that I could help save your life, you could help save my life? I mean, that was the conversation we were having back in March, and I thought, that's, that's it. That's, that's got to inspire people to do the right thing. And, the, you know, the last day of October, we're hearing from the first son that, that deaths aren't even happening. How do you solve a problem if you don't acknowledge it at all? I mean, it, it was... It was um, you know, I lost a little bit of sleep just thinking, not, again, not about my own feelings, but the idea that, you know, we're the United States and the best we could do was be the worst in the world. It yeah. just doesn't sit right with me. Um, and the U.S., just since I've been on air, passed this sobering new milestone, 9 million cases, 9 million by far, uh, according to official numbers, the worst in the world in terms of how many people have been infected with this this horrible virus. What do you think the count's going to look like a month from now at the end of November? Well, you know, the, the pace at which people are becoming infected is, is increasing, you know, so we, we um, yeah, people say we're going to hit maybe 100,000 people be potentially becoming infected every day. It could surpass that even. So if you think about a month, you know, you're talking about 3 million more people potentially, you know, I, I hope not. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that word so cavalier. 3 million people could potentially become infected within a month. But it is, it is possible, Jake. I mean, you know, you look at the numbers today versus yesterday and you look at not just the growth, but the pace of growth. And, um, you know, within uh, another less than two weeks, there'll probably be another million people who've been infected. If the numbers continue to grow at that pace, that acceleration, you know, it's, it's, it's really problematic. There are younger people who are they're making up a larger percentage of the newly infected. As you point out, we do have more therapeutics we should be able to bring the overall death rate down as a proportion of infected. But once you have so many people infected, 
even if you bring the death rate down, the proportion down, it's still so many deaths, Jake. I mean, if you look at the IHME model, they say we could possibly get close to 2,500 people potentially dying every day again. If you think about that, 100,000 infected, 2,500, that's still that 2.5% you know, that, that, that we've been talking about. And even beyond the death rate, I mean, some of the young, healthy people that survive this have lifelong health effects, scarring in their lungs, still having trouble breathing months later. Um, and now, of course, uh, with the onset of the flu season, uh, we have a, a case in California yeah. where somebody has tested positive for both coronavirus and the flu at the same time. What is most worrisome about that? Well, I, I think that we're going to see more and more of that, uh, you know, because, you know, you have these two respiratory viruses that are really going to be increasing in numbers around the same time. And it is possible, as you, as you point out, to, to be infected with both. The, the, the idea, I think, is less, uh, less significant for any given individual because I think uh, the overall magnitude of the disease on an individual will be dictated by, you know, the worst virus for that person. But when you have this uh, happening in large populations, the concern, I think, for public health officials is that both these things uh, in, in a, cer a certain segment of the population is going to require hospitalization. And if you're demanding resources for two sort of viruses, respiratory viruses at the same time, that's when you really start to get in trouble in terms of resources. So we already have a good projection on any given year of how many people need to be hospitalized for flu. And now they're trying to layer in and, and, and try and anticipate what it's going to look like with coronavirus as well. Uh, it's so depressing. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Appreciate you as always. Okay. The final focus, President Trump and Joe Biden bombarding the upper Midwest battleground states. We're going to talk about why that area is so important and the wild card to watch on the road to victory. Harry Enten will break it all down. Stay with us. Today, Joe Biden and his campaign have a clear focus on the campaign trail, rebuilding the Democrats' blue wall that has been so crucial to their past election successes, though not four years ago. Biden this afternoon campaigning in Des Moines, Iowa, before rallies in both Minnesota and Wisconsin this evening. CNN's Arlette Signs is live for us in Falcon Heights, Minnesota, just outside St. Paul, where Biden is holding another event in just a few minutes. Arlette, why has the Biden team decided to focus there today? Well, Jake, Joe Biden says he's not taking anything for granted, and that includes right here in Minnesota. This is a Democratic-leaning state, but one where President Trump has really tried to make an aggressive play in in recent weeks. So part of Biden's goal today in this three-state swing that he's making is to shore up Democratic support in an area like Minnesota, as well as Wisconsin, where he will be traveling later today. But just a few hours ago, Biden campaigned in Iowa. That's a state that President Trump won decisively back in 2016, but there is a competitive race there right now in this presidential election. And Biden talked about his closing message, honing in on the coronavirus pandemic and also talking about the character of the nation being at stake. Take a listen. Well, nothing can tear America apart except America itself. And that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing from the beginning, trying to divide America pitting Americans against one another based on race, gender, ethnicity, national origin. It's wrong. That's not who we are. Look, folks, everybody knows who Donald Trump is. We got to let them know who we are. 
Now, while in Iowa, Biden also promoted the Democratic Senate candidate, Teresa Greenfield. You've seen him done that, do that in other states like Georgia and Michigan, as he has argued that it's not just important to, for Democrats to win the White House, but they also need to reclaim the Senate. Jake? That's a competitive race there for incumbent Republican Senator Joni Ernst, uh, her seat. Arlette, where is the Biden campaign putting its resources on this uh, final weekend and on Monday, the last day before Election Day? Well, Biden's focus in the final stretch will be on rebuilding that blue wall. He's ending today in Wisconsin. Tomorrow, he will be campaigning in Michigan with his former boss and most powerful surrogate, President Obama. They're trying to drive up turnout there, including with black voters. And then it's all eyes on Pennsylvania. Biden will be campaigning there on Sunday. And on Monday, the both candidates on the Democratic ticket and their spouses will be fanning out across the state. Pennsylvania, critically important to their path to 270 electoral votes. Jake? I think you meant to say the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Uh, the Commonwealth, yes. The Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. All right, Arlette Science in Minnesota. I'm smiling. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Let's discuss. Uh, Gloria Boards here today. Both Biden and Trump clearly focused on the Midwest. Trump hitting Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. Uh, Biden, as we just said, in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin. Gloria, what does that tell you? Uh, well, it tells me that uh, Joe Biden in particular is trying to shore up those uh, Midwestern states that they feel that Hillary Clinton didn't pay enough attention to in 2016. I mean, Biden's ahead in Minnesota, but he wants to make sure that he gets his voters out. And that is exactly what he's trying to do. When you talk to the Trump campaign, what they will tell you is they believe that they have a great get out uh, the vote effort and that their candidate is the great motivator and that whatever we're seeing in the polls, we shouldn't pay any attention to because they're going to make up the differential on Election Day. And they believe that Donald Trump is the person who can do that, which is why you see him out there barnstorming like crazy uh, in places that he won last time, sort of effectively putting his finger in the dike, trying to make sure that he can he can keep what he won with last time. And Abby, the Biden campaign also said they want to make Pennsylvania their critical focus on Monday. Uh, both Biden, Harris and their spouses will be campaigning in all four corners of the Commonwealth. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, uh, Jake, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is obviously. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just a, it's a very it's a very <laughs> annoying habit of mine. Go, go ahead. I apologize. It's obviously really central to the Biden uh, strategy, both uh, frankly, honestly, offensively and defensively. The Biden campaign knows that Pennsylvania is that uh, tipping point state that if everything goes pretty well for them on the map, Pennsylvania can get them very quickly over 270. Uh, on the other hand, if uh, Donald Trump is able to get a lot of the states that he won last time, taking, all, taking out the Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and Minnesota, taking that completely out of the equation, Pennsylvania is a key state for Trump, too. Uh, and it makes his path to 270 a whole lot easier as well. This is a critical state that also signals what might happen in those upper Midwestern states. Uh, it's got parts of the state that have the same kind of DNA. And so for the Biden campaign, this is a proving, uh, proving ground. They have got to show that they 
are competitive there uh, because what happens in Pennsylvania is going to be a harbinger of what is to come later on. That is exactly what happened uh, four years ago to Hillary Clinton. And they know that uh, that for Biden, they can't let that happen this time around. Uh, the, the one problem with this is that Pennsylvania, we already know, is going to take a while to count their votes. So even while it might be a tipping point, it's, it's going to be a late tipping point. We won't really know exactly where that state is for a little bit of a time. You know, it, it's yeah, no mistake. It's, it's no mistake that you hear Joe Biden talk about how he's from Scranton and how you hear the president talk about how he went to Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. And then the president says, well, you know, Joe Biden really isn't from Scranton. He left you. He left you. And uh, it's so, I mean, they're, you know, they're trying to use every connection they can to the state of Pennsylvania. And uh, Biden believes that he has a better connection uh, as a, he believes he's a real populist, really connecting with working people. And he believes, of course, that, that Trump is not. And, and Trump was going to hold four rallies in Pennsylvania tomorrow, yeah. then five more yeah. on Sunday, five more on Monday. That's 17 rallies all over the country, not just Pennsylvania. In four days, uh, he's going to hit the Sun Belt and Rust Belt uh, hard. Abby, I think one of the theories of the case from, from the Trump campaign, and let's be very clear, Trump absolutely has a path to 270 electoral votes. He could definitely be reelected. I mean, it doesn't matter what the polls suggest. That's, those are just odds uh, and a snapshot. Uh, what do you think that his theory of the case is uh, in terms of how he can win? Is it just going to these Trump areas, Abby, and getting uh, the vote up as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, the theory is that they have, um, as Gloria said, a superior turnout organization, that they can turn out Trump voters who are not being accounted for uh, by the typical ways that we measure who's showing up on, on Election Day. The thing is th that it is true that four years ago the president was able to uh, to not only convert some kind of what I would describe as almost dormant Democratic voters, people who didn't really have uh, much of a, a cultural tie to the Democratic Party and were sort of waiting for someone and, and Donald Trump scooped them up. He flipped some Obama voters. That is true, too. But there were also some new voters. And you hear them talking a lot about people who are newly registered voters. They say that those people are much more likely to vote this time around. And on top of that, that they have the ground game to find them and to actually actually turn them out. He's going to have to do that in an incredibly supercharged way in all of the places that are close. So Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Arizona, these are all places that are close that almost all of them he has to win in. I mean, they really need to have an explosive election day turnout. And the Trump uh, campaign believes that that is exactly what they will have. And what we have seen in early voting, the advantage for Biden in many places will dissipate completely. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, mm -hmm. anything really could happen. Gloria Borger, Abby Phillip, thank you so much. Voters scrambling after a late decision in a crucial battleground state. Why the deadline for mailed-in ballots was suddenly moved up one whole week. And the road to 270 has both candidates sprinting across the upper Midwest, also ripping through that area. Coronavirus, stay with us. In the 2020 lead, more people have now voted early in Texas than voted in the total 2016 election in the Lone Star State. Across the country, more than 85 million Americans have already voted. That's more than 60% of all ballots cast in 2016. There's also a new sense of urgency with new court rulings threatening the validity of some ballots that have been mailed in. CNN's Pamela Brown reports in today's Making It Count. With just four days to Election Day, 
The message to voters in many places is clear. It's too late to mail in your ballot. If you have an absentee ballot in your hand right now, drop it off in person. Thursday night, a federal appeals court handed down another confusing ruling in Minnesota, essentially moving up the deadline for mail-in ballots from a week after Election Day to 8 p.m. on November 3rd. All of the ballots that come in after Election Day are going to be set aside, they're going to be segregated, and there could be future litigation that might cause those ballots not to be counted. That's problematic for anyone in Minnesota who already mailed in their ballots, believing they had another week to be delivered. Earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court kept ballot deadline extensions in place in North Carolina and Pennsylvania by declining to make a decision this close to the election. If they haven't sent their ballot in yet, walk it to the election office or a drop box, uh, but do it in person. Butler County, Pennsylvania, received thousands of calls from voters who still haven't received their requested ballots. Thousands of those ballots remain unaccounted for. Over 99% of the ballots have been sent out. You know, there's been mail delays and there's been sort of spotty places, regional places where there have been issues. The Postal Service says it doesn't have a record of them being dropped off. Now officials are investigating. Despite the issues with mail-in voting, the overall turnout ahead of Election Day has been massive. Texas officially surpassed its entire 2016 turnout already. It's the last day of early voting in seven states, including Georgia, where more than three and a half million people have voted, a 70 percent increase over 2016. As Election Day approaches, there is mounting anxiety about voter intimidation. Philadelphia's DA says the city received dozens of calls reporting possible voter intimidation, but none were very serious. Still, the DA had a stark warning for anyone trying to threaten voters. I got a jail cell and I got criminal charges and you can st uh, stand in front of a Philadelphia jury and you can explain why you thought it was OK to come to Philly and steal our votes. And today, Jake, the Postal Service outlined a series of, quote, extraordinary measures that it's taking to ensure ballots get to where they need to be on time to get counted. That includes adding extra collection hours and adding special lines at the post office with people for people with ballots. Jake. And Pamela, given how many Americans are voting by mail and how many states don't start counting those ballots until Election Day, we cannot emphasize this enough. We likely will not know the winner of several key states on election night, meaning we probably will not know next Tuesday who the next president is. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. There has been a record number of mail-in ballots this year because of the pandemic. And election officials have said over and over again, we may not know the results because, especially because in a couple of key battleground states, they're not even starting the process. They're not even opening up the ballot for these mail-in ballots until election day. That's Pennsylvania and that's Wisconsin. These are also two states, Jake, that don't have a history of dealing with mail-in ballots. That's not typically how they vote in their elections, but this year, they are because of the pandemic. And so because of that, because of all of these factors, experts are saying, hey, everyone should be patient on election night, that they're always unofficial anyways, and they're not certified for weeks. And even if a candidate does declare victory too early, it has no legal bearing, Jake. And Republican-leaning uh, Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, says they're not even going to start counting the vote by mail until the next day, until Wednesday. Yeah, that's, that, there's at least seven counties in Pennsylvania that are saying they're going to wait till the next day.
All right, Pamela Brown, thanks so much. Today, President Trump and Joe Biden are each holding three campaign rallies, trying to sway every last voter possible in this final election swing scene. And resident forecaster Harry Enten joins me now live. And Harry, we see Biden and Trump today both focusing heavily on the upper Midwest. Why is this such a crucial area? Yeah, I mean... Just take a look at our map here, and it gives you a really good understanding. It forms a basis for Joe Biden's blue wall, right? Specifically, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He's favored there right now. Iowa is much more of a toss-up, and you can see this in the polling averages, right? Where what you see is that Joe Biden holds significant advantages in Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Again, Iowa very, very close. And what is the, why is Wisconsin, you know, a state that went for Donald Trump four years ago, why is Joe Biden ahead by nine points right now there? It's because of white voters without a college degree. Right now, Trump is up by four points. He's still leading. But remember, last time around, he won that group by 16 points in Wisconsin. So a real deterioration of his support there. And Harry, we know the coronavirus is really surging in those states right now. Do voters see the pandemic as one of the top election issues? Yeah, they do. Uh, in fact, they see it as the top issue. Uh, you know, we have polls from Wisconsin and we have them from Michigan. And take a look here. The coronavirus ranks as the most important issue facing the country in both of those states. The economy, which Trump is trying to pump up, only rates second more than 10 points behind in each of those states. So when will we know which candidate uh, has carried which states in the upper Midwest? Uh, will it be on election night? Probably not, at least in the states that matter, right? You know, you were just talking with Pam about this. Take a look here. This gives you a very good understanding. The mail-in votes, they will not be processed before Election Day in Wisconsin, in Michigan, and only some of the state. Minnesota and Iowa, they do begin. But, of course, it's really Michigan and specifically Wisconsin, which are the most important states. It's more important for us to get the vote totals right than to be fast. Accuracy is numero uno in my mind. And Pennsylvania, obviously not in that map, not in the Midwest, but they're not going to start counting until Election Day. That's by law. Um, and Harry, there is this uh, major wild card here, and that's what we saw in the 2016 results. Yeah, you know, uh, there's all this idea that the polls may not necessarily be right. But I think what's so important to point out here is that even if the polls are off by the same margin that they were in 2016, Take a look here. Joe Biden would still get 335 electoral votes. He would still win in a place like Michigan. He would still win in a place like Wisconsin. He would still win in Minnesota. So Donald Trump just needs a bigger polling error. Could that happen? Of course it could, Jake. But he's facing a much more uphill battle than he did four years ago. Fighting an up, uphill, uphill battle. But as we all know, anything could happen. Anything, anything could, could happen. happen. Anything. That's right. Happen. Harry Anton, thanks so much. And the night Thank we've you. all been waiting for is almost here. Election night in America. CNN's live coverage will start on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, not enough beds for babies. A new report reveals the chaos caused by the Trump administration's family separation policy. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead today, win or lose in four days, President Trump has dramatically changed the Republican Party over the last four years, including the way he tosses around and promotes false conspiracy theories, fueling them uh, on his Twitter account. Uh, joining me now, Republican Congressman from Virginia, Denver Ringel, Riggleman. Uh, Congressman, thanks so much for, for joining us. Four days before Election Day, how do you see the future of the Republican Party? It's a little worrisome, and I want to lay everybody's fears. I went Commonwealth to Commonwealth. I'm in Pennsylvania right now, Jake, so <laughs> not going anywhere weird, right? I just want everybody, and I knew you talked about Commonwealth, and I'm not planning Bohemian Grove right now, but um, the issue that we have is that we have a party that policies are solid, but we're actually starting to see candidates that are pushing theories that are outlandish. And not only are they outlandish, they're federated. And what I mean by that is that it's sort of a glom of conspiracy theories that are nonsensical, but really have an anti-Semitic base 
but they have a base where it's actually dehumanizing other people. And that's something that really worries me going forward is what does the GOB become? I think, you know, we were the party of Abraham Lincoln, of Teddy Roosevelt, of Ronald Reagan, you know, and that's the kind of party or constitutional Republican I wanted to be. But right now I'm looking at theories that are very concerning. And in my background in intelligence, it's just very hard for me to grasp that. And you uh, lost the party convention uh, to be renominated. And one of the reasons that you did, I mean, your, your time in office is ending in January. One of the reasons you lost is because you presided over uh, a same-sex marriage, not just same-sex, but interracial same-sex marriage. Uh, yes, sir. Is that, why, is that why you think you lost? Because you did something perfectly legal? Yes. And, you know, and that was what was very surprising to me is that is. You know, a party that is supposed to embrace individual liberty. I had two friends who worked for me on the campaign, uh, very dear people, and um, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I would have been a coward, you know, if I didn't officiate that wedding. And that really was the, the beginning of the end is I refused to kiss the ring of certain individuals. I refused to apologize. And, you know, it's sort of funny. I was called a tool of the Antichrist, and my daughter, my wife was called the spawn of Satan. And I guess that makes us a new power couple in Virginia. I, I've never, I, I've never had these type of attacks. And I think that's part of the problem that we're seeing is there's a small portion, I think, of the GOP uh, that might not be dealing in reality or where, we at, where we're at right now as a country. And you've written a, a book that's coming out. It's very entertaining, very fun, tackling some of these extremist groups and conspiracy <laughs> theories. It's called Bigfoot. It's complicated. How dangerous of a threat are these groups, do you think, Congressman, and the legitimacy they now have? I think it, when, when it goes from sort of simple fun or mythologizing to weaponizing that myth or weaponizing insanity, that's what's crazy. And I talked about something being federated. Bigfoot belief systems are federated, you know, and, there's, and they're, in, they're really uh, sort of – some are sort of crazy. They're unprovable. And that's what I get to. This was supposed to be a fun book that I wrote over 14 years, and I'm going to shock everybody. You know, this is what they were talking about on Saturday Night Live when they spoofed me. Um, this is the very book that they were talking about that was supposed to be Bigfoot erotic. And by the way, this is actually more amusing. And uh, But it's also – it should terrify you. It should make you laugh a little bit. Um, and it should make you cry a little bit because um, I wrote this book sort of starting in fun. And by the end of the book, you see that, you know, it's funny, right? It's me. It's self-deprecating. But it's also it should let people know that belief systems can get out of control, and those belief systems are sometimes unprovable, but people live by them, and that's okay. But once you weaponize that myth or you weaponize that insanity or it becomes part of a policy platform, we sort of lost our way, and uh, that's what I don't want to see. I don't want the GOP to lose their way. Um, but right now, I'm seeing things that are, again are very concerning, and this book brings it up in a way that's lighthearted at the beginning, but I think it'll scare people by the end. Well, one of the candidates, the Republican candidate in Georgia, uh, who has embraced this insane QAnon theory, the idea that Democrats have a secret cabal of Satan-worshipping uh, cannibalistic pedophiles, um, she got the nomination for the Republican Party, and she's now being embraced by House Republican leadership. And in fact, the two, two of the Republican Senate candidates in Georgia competed for her vote um, do you still think that you're a Republican or has your party just run so far off in the direction of conspiracy theories that they left, they've left you behind? You know, I, I always thought of myself as a constitutional Republican. And, and Jake, the thing that I, you know, I like about this program and the way that you present things is how do we just deal in facts? And, and I believe, based on the platform, I still am. But I don't, I don't think I left the party. I think the party's leaving me. And, you know, my background in intelligence, uh, the background that I have in the military, and, and I'm a fact-based guy – 
is why I wrote this book, but it's also why I ran for office. And if I never run for office again, at least I can say I, I just try to speak in facts. And I don't want to make everybody angry, but you know I've had this unique ability to anger both sides. And now you see some of those methods used by the right being used on the left. I've been using working with ana uh, analysis companies. And you know now we start, we're seeing mimicking of coded language and memes happening on the right and the left. And I got to tell you, this stuff, this stuff can metastasize, not only nationally but internationally, as you see in Germany and Italy. All right, Congressman Denver Riggleman, thank you so much. Good to see you again. The book is called Bigfoot. It's complicated. Uh, you'll tweet out a link so people can buy it, and I'll retweet it so people know <laughs> where they can get it. Okay, Congressman, good to see you, Jake, sir. Jake, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's right. a great title. Every day this week in the 2020 lead, we've looked into the major issues in this race and where the candidates stand. Today, we're going to dive into one of the most divisive immigration. With the president's senior policy advisor, Stephen Miller, vowing to make immigration a top second-term agenda item, as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, Joe Biden is also pitching plans of his own. The cries of children separated from their parents at the border, one of the haunting hallmarks of the Trump-era immigration agenda. The zero-tolerance policy that tore kids from their parents as they crossed into the U.S. has ended, but the effects remain. Lawyers leading the reunification efforts revealed this month parents of 545 children still have not been found. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden pledging to step in on day one. Joe Biden will issue an executive order creating a federal task force to reunite these children with their parents. Those parents and those kids are alone. Nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. It's criminal. White House senior advisor Stephen Miller has made clear if Trump wins a second term, the immigration crackdown will continue. The Trump administration ended the abuse of the asylum system, ended catch and release, and therefore dealt a devastating blow to human traffickers, child smugglers and coyotes and criminal cartels. Miller has been the architect of every part of Trump's immigration agenda. The president signed a proclamation this week capping refugee admission to the United States at 15,000 for 2021. It would be an historic low and barring refugees from Syria, Yemen and Somalia, citing terrorism concerns. Joe Biden says he will set a target of 125,000 refugee admissions with a goal of no less than 95,000. Biden also backs eventual citizenship for undocumented immigrants and has pledged to make sure DACA, the program for children brought to the U.S. illegally by their parents, is not undone. Within 100 days, I'm going to send to the United States Congress a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented people. And all of those so-called dreamers, those DACA kids, they're going to be immediately certified again to be able to stay in this country and put on a path to citizenship. President Trump has tried to end DACA, though he's been halted by the Supreme Court for now. Then there's the future of the border wall. Under my leadership, we achieved the most secure border in U.S. history, and we built over 400 miles of new wall. The administration has also moved to seize private property, with more than 70 lawsuits pending to acquire more land for the wall. And Trump still hasn't made Mexico pay for the wall, despite his promises. Mexico will be paying for the wall. Biden says he will take a different approach along the border. There will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration. Withdraw the, the, the lawsuits. We're out. We're not going to confiscate the land. I'm going to make sure that we have border protection, but it's going to be based on making sure that we use high-tech capacity to deal with it. 
And President Trump has relied heavily on executive orders to implement those big changes in immigration law here in this country. In fact, the nonpartisan think tank, the Migration Policy Institute, has counted more than 400 executive actions. And Jake, Joe Biden, if he's elected, is also pledging on day one to sign an executive order to reunite those 545 families. Jake. All right, Jessica Snyder with the latest in our look at the issues separating these two candidates. President Trump saying we're rounding the corner when it comes to the coronavirus, but the numbers and facts tell a much sadder, tragic story. A look at a week of devastating pandemic records. That's next. I wish I had good news for you in our health lead. I don't. From coast to coast, multiple states are hitting record highs for new coronavirus cases. In Ohio, nearly 3,900 infections have been reported just today. It's the second day in a row that Ohio has reported a record number of cases. In Illinois, nearly 7,000 cases were reported just today, marking another daily record for that state. And Montana just reported a record high for daily cases there at more than 1,000. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is standing by with more. Elizabeth, we're seeing surges all across the nation. Tell us more about what the data shows. Jake, I think this, this map tells us everything we need to know. When you look at this map that we're about to show you, know that orange and red are bad. And what do you see when you look at this map? Orange and red. Those states, the numbers are going up. That's 43 states where the number of cases are going up. Yellow means holding steady. That's only five states. And in green, that means that the numbers are going down. That's only two states. Let's talk about some unfortunate records that have been set. Yesterday, nine states hit record highs for the number of people with COVID for case numbers. 17 states hit record high for hospital hospitalizations. Also on Thursday, there were 971 deaths. And Jake, you know, I I want to focus on those deaths for a minute because sometimes you hear from COVID deniers, oh, so people get sick for a day or two. That's not a big deal. It's the deaths that you want to pay attention to. That's what's important. And that's not a, and there aren't many deaths. 971 people in the United States dying in one day is a big deal. It is a terribly, terribly sad day that we've come to this. Jake? CDC Director Robert Redfield just released some new information about how COVID is affecting flu transmission this fall. What did he have to say? He said that he sees that the flu numbers are way lower than they are in previous years. He said about 75% lower. But I want to sort of give a caveat here. Exactly a year ago today, I was speaking with Tony Fauci about this. And I said, Dr. Fauci, tell me what the flu numbers look like. He said, Elizabeth, it's October 30th. I'm not going to get into flu numbers. It's too early. So this is very, very early to be talking about flu numbers. Hopefully, Dr. Redfield's right. And we have an easy flu season like they did in Australia this spring. Jake? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Finally, as more than 229,000 Americans have been killed by coronavirus, including 971 yesterday, we would like to take this moment just to remember one, one of the lives cut short by the virus, 57-year-old Shirley Bannister. She passed away shortly after contracting the virus. Her 28-year-old daughter, Demetria Bannister, also died from complications from COVID. Shirley Bannister was the chair of the nursing department at Midland Technical College in Columbia, South Carolina. She was beloved by all her co-workers, who described her as, quote, an angel on earth. May her memory and that of every victim of this virus be a blessing. This Sunday, we have a special election edition of State of the Union, two hours, two days before the election. My guests include Anita Dunn, who is from the Biden campaign, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, Florida Senator Rick Scott, and Pete Buttigieg. It all starts Sunday 
at 9 a.m. Eastern, a two-hour edition of State of the Union. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Stay safe. I'll see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.